Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. Let's meet the panel. Roz Taylor is a writer and Podmaster's new contributing editor. Hi, Roz. Hello, Dorian. The UK is considering joining the European political community championed by Emmanuel Macron. Uh, he says this uh, exciting new club can discuss security, energy and transport and the movement of people. What is this and what will it do for Europe? Because it sounds, uh, you know, from a certain angle, like the European Union, but it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. It's political rather than economic is the is the key word there, albeit that's a fairly loose term just to differentiate it. But the key thing here is that Macron has to decide what this is going to be, and he hasn't quite decided what it's going to be yet. Uh, there's a suggestion that it might be a way of keeping some of the Western Balkans countries that would like to join the EU, but whose applications are being held up, keeping them happy and on board and talking to the EU. There's a suggestion that it's a good way of keeping Britain on board and making sure that we talk to them as well. Perhaps it's a it's another way of ensuring Tur Turkey is at the table as well. But which of those it might be and what exactly it's going to talk about is not clear, nor is it clear whether Britain would actually join. I think a lot depends on whether Liz Truss wants to seem aloof and petulant and not leading any Europe or whether she's prepared to be a little more conciliatory, shall we say. Is there a problem in that it's Macron's idea and even the original European community was, was a, a sort of Franco-German alliance? Do, uh, people Might there be some reticence um, to join something that seems like it might uh, boost Macron's ego? Well, maybe if you were very stupid, yeah. I mean, the guy's <laughs> the guy's in his second term, and uh, if you were going to be that that petulant, then well, yeah, sure. I, I I don't I don't think in principle talking to the French is a problem. No, I don't mean talking to the French, but I mean the fact that it's one person's that it comes out of that. It's mm. attached to one person, one country, as opposed to something that has sort of come out of a meeting between leaders. Yeah, I mean. It's difficult because, of course, Trust did say that during the leadership campaign that she wasn't sure whether Macron was going to be a friend or a foe, which was one of the most stupid things that she said during that campaign <laughs> of the many stupid things. But uh, having said that, she was pictured yesterday shaking hands with him and looking reasonably friendly by her standards. So who knows? Not foley. <laughs> um, Alex Andreu is a commentator. Hi, Alex. Hi, Dorian. So I turned on the radio this morning to hear former Putin advisor Sergei Markov screaming, Russia don't want everybody in the world to die. But if that did happen, then it would be the fault of Joe Biden and Lizzie Truss, as he <laughs> appeared to say. Um, Putin's just announced mobilization of reservists and referenda in Russian-occupied Ukraine. Is this the sort of famous madman theory, you know, Nixon's idea that you want to seem like you might start a nuclear war, but you don't really? Or is he a genuine madman? I had a chat with our Doomsday Watch colleague, Arthur Snell, about this Putin statement on Tuesday and then the interviews that have followed it, because I really, I was desperate to understand it, um, because to me, nothing says I'm bluffing, like making a televised statement that says, I'm not bluffing, I'm telling you now, I'm very serious. That's what the best poker players seems, say, isn't it? It just seems I'm really not a bluffing. desperate way. Um, I think this escalation and partial mobilization, as bizarre as it seems to us, could simply be a confirmation that Putin is still surrounded by people afraid to give him good advice, afraid to tell him what's actually going on on the ground. And he basically still thinks he can dominate Ukraine. I mean, in his defense, it's not much of a defense, but the idea of just throwing large numbers of young men at the war meat grinding machine is a time-honored Russian strategy. 
The problem, I think, for him is that politically, internally, if this partial mobilization begins to actually happen, and at the moment it's just a statement, right, then you get large amounts of people and increasingly sort of slightly more middle class, slightly more educated urban people being called up to the army in a very large number of families with direct information about how badly this is going. And significantly, he also appears to have lost or part the way towards losing support from China and India, whom he met last week, and they both expressed concern. So, I mean, I genuinely don't know where this is going other than him trying to hold on until 2024 and a possible Trump administration or him falling off a balcony accidentally, having shot himself twice accidentally. I, I, I genuinely cannot see what he's out is. And it might be that it's actually down to the West to provide him with an out at this point because he's beginning to sound and his proxies beginning to sound quite mad. Well, what would the out be? What, I don't know. What out could the West provide him? With? I don't know. A restart of diplomacy, something. The point is, when you know that someone has lost, it is time to begin a kind of dialogue in the absence of deciding we're going to just flatten you, which, which won't happen because they will never go into their territory. This week's guest is a seasoned politico. He was previously at Ofsted and the New Schools Network and is currently UK director of the think tank More in Common. Luke Trill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, more in Common's mission is to build uh, a more united, inclusive and resilient society, says the website. Um, we've, we've heard a lot the last few days about the unifying power of the Queen. Can the King approximate that or has that time been and gone? I think he can. We actually spoke to um, a group of voters in Oldham to ask, um, I guess, what their hopes and expectations were uh, for King Charles's reign. And the first thing that they said was that they felt that that first address to the nation that he gave really hit for them all the right notes. And we also asked, it was quite interesting, I asked people about his history of activism because, mm. you know, there have been lots of people who suggested that actually, you know, are people going to warm to a king with opinions? And they said, actually, you know, he's been ahead of the curve on a lot of this stuff, hasn't he? You know, but particularly on the green agenda, mm. you would, uh, people in the group were saying, you know, I didn't really believe in any of this stuff, but look at this summer, he's been proven totally right. So mm. I think it's obviously not going to be the same type of monarchy. And it's hard to imagine that sort of process we've been through over the past uh, 10 days repeating itself. I mean, almost for anyone else uh, in the world, in any other uh, country. But I think there is goodwill for him to succeed and for him to take the monarchy and its role in our national life into its next stage in the way that each monarch inevitably does. I think, you know, what one challenge, of course, is that he clearly doesn't um, have his mother's quite so even temperament Pen uh, with, with Pengate. Um, with, with, with Pengate. And, you know, people entirely understand after what he'd been through and all of the public scrutiny, you know, he was a bit snappy at the time. I, I think the worry must be if we see a few more of those flashes, then public sympathy might um, start to wane. Yeah, we've had a, a, a bad history of snappy kings in this country. <laughs> <laughs> this week on the show, Liz Truss is back, back, back. Are we ready for Britannia Unhinged? And with conference season on the way, for everyone except the Lib Dems, sorry, we speak to Luke about what voters really want from politics. 
Plus, in the extra bit for Patreon backers, the Queen's funeral was a pageant of ritual and tradition. What's the appeal? And will the pomp and circumstance endure under the new king? Before we get started, a little bit of news. If you're enjoying our companion podcast, Doomsday Watch, and its world tour of apocalypses to come, the first ever Doomsday Watch Live is happening in London on Thursday the 6th of October, nuclear war permitting. It's taking place at the 21 Soho venue near Tottenham Court Road, and tickets are on sale now. Presenter Arthur Snell will be talking Ukraine and more with nerve agent expert and former US Secret Serviceman Dan Kajeta. And our producer Andrew will turn the tables on Arthur and interview him about serving in Afghanistan, Zimbabwe, Yemen, Iraq and the front lines of podcasting. Search Doomsday Watch 21 Soho to find tickets or just follow the link in the show notes. First this week, Liz Truss is currently in the US after making such an impact at the Queen's funeral that Australian broadcasters didn't recognise her. She's not doing much better in Washington, admitting that a US-UK trade deal is still years away. But when she gets back, we're in for a four-day policy whirlwind, including the scrapping of planned rises in national insurance and corporation tax, further authorisation for fracking, and yet more tax cuts. Alex, it was reported... I don't know how reliably that Joe Biden cancelled his meeting with Liz Truss after her team briefed that it would be about the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, she knows that this angers America as well as Europe. Mm-hmm. Why is she pushing it at a time when seemingly she would like uh, she would like this trade deal and good relations? Um, maybe it's positioning before the meeting. Um, it it could be that taking a hard line position that you know you, the other side doesn't like before the meeting gives you some areas to soften during the meeting. Um, I mean, we don't know precisely why it was cancelled. This is a credible theory. During the rounds, Truss's team is trying to spin it uh, to say that they postponed it so they could have a bilateral meeting on the margins of the UN Assembly uh, this Wednesday. But it is a downgrade, uh, undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. And uh, a White House source, the, the Telegraph reports, says this is a, an opportunity to start a new chapter, to make a fresh start. Those are their words. So um, I think the White House really hated Johnson mm. uh, and made that quite clear. And I think they're hoping that by leaving the door open to trust, she will at least soften in some of those areas and get the relationship going again. Um, Biden tweeted that trickle-down economics doesn't work. Uh, do you think that was purely aimed at Republicans or uh, a dig at trust too? It seemed very <laughs> strangely timed considering that, that that is her main policy. I, I think that is to grossly overstate her importance to Biden, I'm afraid. Um, he he bangs on about this very, very regularly. It's almost in every single one of his speeches. It is very embarrassing, but accidentally so. Right which I'm not sure if that makes it even more embarrassing. Um, Also awkward, Truss's chief of staff, Mark Fulbrook, has been questioned as a witness in an FBI investigation into a bribery scandal in Puerto Rico, which sounds very exciting. (laughs) Could be a three out of five Netflix movie. It is is quite exciting, you know. I explained it it all on Monday's bunker. So if anyone was to hear about it, just go there, because it's a long and involved tale about a gubernatorial election in Puerto Rico. Uh, In my view, it's almost irrelevant whether he's done anything wrong or not. We've seen him cancel um, his uh, visit to the States. He he hasn't gone with Mm -hmm. trust to the UN 
assembly like he was meant to. So there's obviously some stuff going on there. I think it's irrelevant whether he's done anything murky or not. A chief of staff position is all about the optics, and the optics on this are dreadful. If she has any sense, he will be gone by the end of the week, but she doesn't and he won't. I just find it astonishing that, that the pool that she's drawing from is just full of people who have been, you know, have been lobbying in this country and that country. And there's, there's so much potential for uh, murkiness, apparent conflicts of interest. And you just think, surely there are people who can do this job um, that well, don't have this kind of uh, track record. I mean, Fulbrook was um, Linton Crosby's right-hand man in CT group until April when he signed a deal with the FBI to cooperate as a witness, at which point he left CT. So make of that what you will. Um, the pool is not just a narrow one. It is a single very tiny pool that they always draw from. Um, Roz, Trust seems to think that tax cuts and regulation cuts alone will encourage investment and therefore growth, which is what it's all about, even as Brexit uh, discourages investment. I mean, is this a plan that could work or is this just the ideology? Because sometimes I think perhaps one of the challenges we're going to face in analysing trust is that she appears to have one idea. Um, you know, if all you have is a, is a tax cut hammer, then everything looks like a nail. I mean, can that, can that be done, this very narrow focus on what drives investment? I don't think so. Um, I think it's very unlikely that it will. I think it will prop up certain small, relatively small areas of the economy and give the impression, perhaps, if you look at particular aspects of the economy and the way they're performing, that we're doing better. But ultimately, it won't tackle some of the big, big underlying problems. The FT had a great piece a few days ago pointing out just how many people are on long-term sick leave, which matches up with the large number of people who are on HS, NHS waiting lists. Basically, if you don't have public services that you are funding decently and properly, then you can't get enough people into work to do these jobs which will apparently be created. I also think it's an act of last resort. I think that trust thinks Britain is headed for an almighty recession and that the only way to stave off a bit of it is by boosting these few areas of the economy, like the city, right. in order to distract from mm. the plight that we otherwise find ourselves in. I mean, stamp duty, which apparently Kwasi Kwarteng is going to cut, is an example of this. It's going to benefit rich cash buyers. It's going to benefit people who are already on the housing ladder. It's going to put up prices because that's what exactly what it did two and a half years ago when we last mm. cut stamp duty during the pandemic. Mm. But it will give the illusion of movement and of economic prosperity yeah. while continuing to exclude people who, frankly, in our society don't have much of a voice in the media or in government. And so she is hoping to nominally boost GDP, but the underlying problems, and they are massive, that we have, she is not tackling at all. Well, Kwasi Kwarteng, um, who had a peculiarly good time at the funeral, uh, plans to scrap the cap on bankers' bonuses. And even some bankers say that this is symbolic rather than actively beneficial. Because I'm very naive and looking at the optics of this, I would think that, you you know, that, that everything they're doing seems to be sharing that they want to be seen as the party of the rich. Does this not bother them at all? Have they not seen perhaps the, the pitfalls of this? No, I don't think they're. I mean, the, the posture works if you seriously believe that you could get rich 
or that the boom that's coming will somehow, the alleged boom that's coming will somehow boost you too. And I mean, America, for example, is a society that has been historically very good at telling people they are richer than they actually are. Many more Americans think they are doing a lot better than actually are doing. Mm. But Britain, like the US, is now a very unequal country, much more unequal than most of the rest of Europe. You know, where, when did we say as a country that this trusted direction was the one that we wanted? Because it wasn't when we voted for Brexit no. in order to boost NHS funding. And it wasn't when we voted for Johnson in order to achieve levelling up. Levelling up has been completely abandoned as a principle under trust. Us have green issues. Yeah, exactly. And abandoned. Tory MPs, I don't think, realised when they ousted Johnson that the result would be this hyper, hyper right government that has abandoned mm. the things that did help to, in some ways, define Johnsonism. Did they realise that they were choosing someone who doesn't mind actively courting unpopularity? Because the scale of what she's pushing through is enormous and it shows why Sunak yeah. and Gove have no place in this government, that there simply isn't room for anyone other than people who are fiscal extremists. Um, Luke, many commentators sort of assumed that after the leadership race, trust would become more moderate because she'd be talking to voters rather than members. There's, there's no sign of that so far. Um, you first encountered Liz Trust when you were 17, um, which you'll have to tell us about. Um, I mean, does this make sense to you, this sort of apparent rigidity and at least, in, in my eyes, a kind of a sort of real disregard for um, what sort of more moderate voters would want? I think it's interesting if you look at it. I mean, people say uh, that Liz Truss is ideologically rigid, but her first major announcement was to announce what could be around £150 billion of state support to help people um, with their energy bills uh, to get through the winter. And in fact, having known her uh, since I was um, sort of slightly embarrassing, keen being young conservative campaigner in Calder Valley, and she was the parliamentary candidate and got to know her there. I think the one thing which I would say defines her is that she she is ideological and she does have a vision, but she's also pragmatic with that vision. And clearly what she's decided to do uh, in government and her, and I think, you know, her cabinet are aligned uh, on this, is to prioritise that growth narrative above all else. Now, that means a lot of things. On the one hand, it means dropping a lot of what Lyndon Crosby famously called the barnacles. So there's some stuff like the British Bill of Rights legislation has been dropped. Uh, there was briefing yesterday that uh, Channel 4 uh, privatisation might be dropped. So there's lots of stuff that actually progressives might welcome. But that is so that everything that the government does can be viewed through this growth Prism. And I and I, do, I disagree with, with Ros actually that levelling up has dropped off. I think on Friday, everything uh, that's been briefed, we're going to hear about how, you know, the government intends to put its own spin on levelling up through investment zones to get businesses moving to areas which haven't had investment. I think the test is whether voters don't mind you disagreeing with them, actually, we find. Voters actually don't mind you going for unpopular policies. If popular policies were the pure test of electability, Jeremy Corbyn would be prime minister. We know his individual policies were very popular. It's about the narrative. And the, the important thing for voters with the narrative is, can she, uh, and it's an open question at the moment, convince voters that her narrative is being on their side and that these growth measures will ultimately put money back in their pockets? Well, one barnacle that she's adding on um, is to lift the ban on new grammar schools, been in place since 1998. You know, you've had a long track record working in education. Um, if none of the last three Tory prime ministers thought this was worth bothering with, 
Why does she care so much about it? I think for lots of Tories, um, grammar schools symbolise, you know, the sort of ultimate in sort of, you know, meritocracy, this, you know, ability to make sure that bright pupils are in an environment where they're around other bright pupils. And, you know, as a result, they end up doing better. And, you know, we know that in the past, grammar schools for some students and clearly not all students acted as a sort of engine for social mobility. And so I think that's one of the drivers there. I think the challenge, and it's interesting you say that the past three prime ministers haven't bothered it. Actually, the past three prime ministers have tried it, right. but have ended right. up yeah, yeah, sort yeah. of dropping it. So Theresa May, her big pledge was to grammar schools. And then, of course, she lost mm. a majority in Which 2017. Which means it's quite oh, a right. barnacle, right? It, it means it's it's not an easy thing to push I mean, through. I mean, the polling on grammar that. schools is really interesting because if you, and it, it, so much of it depends actually, it's one of those where the question phrasing really matters. So if you ask people kind of in general, um, would you want your child to go to a grammar school? They will say yes, as you can imagine. If you ask, do you want to bring back secondary moderns? They will say no. So it's one of those that depends on the framing. Well, and I think there's lots of good stuff you can do on grammar policy. For instance, you know, what we need is more existing grammar schools to be taking pupils from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, so some are now you're reserving a quarter of their places for less advantaged pupils. That kind of thing, I think, is all to the good. But isn't the whole isn't this the whole problem with with grammar schools? Is that of course it's great for the people who get into grammar schools, but it's not great for everyone else. And therefore, on balance, you know, it, it seems to me something much like trickle down economics, where it's like it's not as if there's a great mystery here about the effects of this policy and the flaws of this policy. It, I mean, but, but it just I seems think, to be like a real sort of but, but t- Tory shibboleth but, but, rather than something that works. But I think if you look, you know, undoubtedly one of the great flaws in you know the grammar school policy of the 60s was that it also meant that a lot of the focus and attention went purely on the grammar schools. Basically, if you went to a secondary modern, it was sort of sink or swim on your own. I think if the government is serious about bringing back grammars, it has to be accompanied by continuing, you know, and you have to give Johnson credit for this, the focus on vocational education, on skills, on apprenticeships, so that there is an alternative viable route that is as good as the academic route. That's what will determine whether if grammar schools do come back, they end up aiding or um, abetting the cause of social mobility. Do you think they actually will? Come back or? Yeah. Do you think? Uh, do you think, or, or do you think that 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 some that future me will make the same mistake and forget that Truss even tried it? <laughs> I, I think it's you know she has an ambitious legislative agenda. There are you know what maximum two and a quarterish years until the next general election. Uh, I think it's more likely to be a pledge in the next Conservative manifesto right. than we'll see new grammar schools opening this side of the general election. Right. It's surely going to be very difficult to persuade local authorities and indeed existing academies to not to massively oppose this scheme. Because basically, if you're not a new grammar and you're in that area, you're going to get all the kids who, who don't get into the grammar. It's OK to look at Kent and, and Buckinghamshire and places where this uh, system has been going on for a while and people have got used to it. In places where people are used to comprehensives, it's the hardest, hardest sell. Yeah, I think the only way that you could make that sell was you'd basically say to existing academy chains, you can have one of your schools as a grammar school. And what that might encourage then is because academy chains work together a lot more, is pupils moving in and out of the grammar school at different ages and avoiding that cut off um, at 11, which lots of people saw as the great unfairness. 
Um, Alex, talking of hard cells, um, Trust also wants to press ahead with fracking, which um, obviously n- nobody really um, likes. Certainly they don't like it in their backyards. And some of these constituencies where it's, uh, you know, meant to take place are going to be Tory constituencies. Do you think this will actually bear fruit or, or bear frack? Like, is, is, is anything <laughs> going to happen? In the short term, obviously not. I mean, you know, we're, we're not even... First of all, if we fracked all the gas in the country, it wouldn't even touch the sides of the global crisis that we're experiencing at the moment. Because remember, all of these um, commodities go into a single market and their price is determined effectively. Um, I mean, the puzzle is that many of the policies she's pursuing are extremely unpopular, including with Tory voters. So if you look at capping, uh, uncapping bankers' bonuses, very unpopular. If you look at uh, the windfall tax, I mean, 68% of conservative voters think Putting a windfall tax is a really good idea. So I have a theory as to why. I'm not, I, I mean, I can't claim to be right, but I think like all tribute acts, she has decided she wants to emulate Thatcher at her height. And what characterized Thatcher at her height is that she sort of chose a course and was fixedly stubborn and pig-headed about it. Thatcher had won two elections, she had generated a large amount of goodwill and trust within the party and in the country at large. She had earned her big-headedness. The second problem is that it eventually brought her down. So it's like Truss is trying to go into Thatcher circa 1990, imposing the poll tax, having earned none of that political popularity and goodwill and thinking that's going to work out for her. And I don't think it is. I think it's an incredibly poor strategic decision. I think she's had some awful advice from economists from Brexit crowd like Minford and Lyons. And I think it's going to blow up in her face. And in really short order, there's going to be a U-turn on a windfall tax on energy companies. I am absolutely sure of it. It's irresistible to be giving all that money, to be putting all that tax money into capping energy bills and for all of that to be siphoned into Mm. energy companies' profit. The first week of December, when the quarterly profit um, stats come out for the big energy companies, she's done. And when, I mean, when Thatcher took power, unemployment was high and it rose in the early 80s and she managed to get it down. And this was the big thing that she was able to say, Uh, we had the crisis, we went through it, I made the country boom. It took her more than several years to achieve that. And at the moment, unemployment is not high. People in work feel poor. It's a very different economic landscape that she's going into. The Bank of England wasn't independent. The Bank of England is now independent and will respond to these measures with fierce fiscal monetary tightening, rather. They will come out this week and increase um, uh, interest rates by half a point or maybe 0.75. I've had three letters in three consecutive months from my mortgage provider saying, oh, by the way, your mortgage is now this. Mm. Oh, by the way, your mortgage is now that. I just don't understand what she's thinking. Um, Roz, quick one on this this so-called fiscal event rather than a budget. It doesn't need the assessment by the OBR, which was introduced by Tory Chancellor George Osborne. Um, this just seems like saying you don't need a driving license because you don't drive a car. You drive a sort of motor motorised wagon. 
or something like how, how can you how can you get away how much can you ram into a fiscal event just to avoid this scrutiny i think it's more like saying you don't need a driving license because you have to get somewhere so quickly that you'd have time to learn to drive um this is about haste there is you know an, an obr assessment takes time and trust hasn't got time i think the you know it betrays a massive lack of confidence because she suspects that the obr would be critical and a reluctance to take outside advice uh, that's a lesson I think we can learn from yeah. it. Uh, finally, Luke, I was surprised during uh, the Queen's funeral when Trust started speaking and my son laughed and went, pork markets. Now, this is something that an 11-year-old <laughs> who is not, he's not even a listener to this podcast, to be honest, which is disappointing, um, but somebody that really is not following politics closely. And if that's what he knows about, about Trust, like what do you find when you're in your polls? Is the public perception of her like, has, what do people think about her in fact do people have much of an opinion um i think it's quite interesting again you know we're all people who are interested in um politics and current affairs and sort of spend lots of our lives living and uh breathing and sometimes we sort of assume that the public have the same uh sort of level of recognition of these senior politicians that we do but actually did hawking voters about both list trust and rishi sunak um lots of them knew who rishi was from furlough very few of them knew who Liz was, slightly more, learned about her through Ukraine. And then you got to the leadership contest. Few people had seen um, sort of particularly sort of TikTok stuff on the port markets, um, but very few people had an impression. Interestingly, when they saw her, particularly in those later debates, some uh, people quite liked her. Uh, they thought she was quite straightforward. They liked the thing that came up was she answers the question. Mm. Um, but still, even when she became prime minister, we did focus, most people sort of said, don't know much about her, want to give her a chance. Let's see what she does. So I think that's where we are. And I think that's why the fiscal event uh, and party conferences the next week are going to be so important in defining her premiership and what the public think about her. Because at the moment, for lots of people, there's a blank slate. Mm. Now let's answer a question from one of our Patreon backers in But Your Emails. This week, Ross Schoenfeld asks, what does the panel think the most important area outside of formal party politics is to affect progressive change? Consumer action, altruism, diet, or is it all dwarf next to getting behind someone and getting them elected? I mean, I'd say yes, it is all dwarfed by whoever is in power. Yeah, I mean, it, it's... But... I think you get behind whatever you care most about. You know, whatever makes you impassioned and campaign on that issue. But I would also say, on a wider point, whatever it is, don't don't succumb to despair. Don't just get snarky and hang out on Twitter being snarky and you know and and posting despairing memes and because you're talking it, about me. Yeah, it's a bit personal. You're talking about me. Yeah. I would never. I would never suggest you did that. Alex. No, but you know, go it's out. My there. life. <laughs> go out there, and you know, if you do back a, if you do feel able to back a candidate, then campaign for them, and you know, and and back them, and. Don't just stand aside and say, my God, it's all going to shit, because it does feel like at the moment it's all going to shit. But it will only continue to do so if we stand back and don't don't get involved. Well, the community stuff, I mean, these sort of um, community support groups seem like a positive thing where you're actually helping other people, because I think that this personal choices, the problem is about personal choices is, is that they only matter if lots of people are doing them. So it's great, you know, if you want to be vegan, that would be great. But it's it takes millions of people to do that. So in your own personal life, that's fine. But it's not doing much and 
whereas I compared to community stuff, where you can actually think, do you know what, that I have helped somebody who might not otherwise have been helped. Yeah, and that's good for your mental health. All the evidence shows that the more you volunteer mm -hmm. and spend time with other people, the better your own mental health is, and so you feel more positive about the future, which is also a good thing. Alex? I kind of feel the opposite. I feel that obviously you should be political, you should be active, you should support causes you feel passionate about and the politicians that you want to see elected. All of that is right, but none of that matters unless you make the internal um, change that goes from I want this to do I need this. And I think that is the simplest and most profound change you can make. And you know, I mean, I, I read a book about this stuff probably about a year and a half ago. And one of the little things I took away from it was to give myself a cooling off period. So because everything is so easily available, you tend to think, oh, I need X, just log on on my phone, bought it. There is an instancy to our gratification. And if we can just mm -hmm. uncouple from that, um, I think that's a really profound right. change. And you can't, you can't, we have to be Aristotelian about this. We can't wait for everyone to become a better person so that we become a better person. You know, no one is going to come and say, now, guys, okay, we've got enough numbers, stop I'm, eating meat But I now. assume the people asking this, person asking this, I assume that they're doing that. And I suppose that's where I feel like, okay, these are people that perhaps already they've made these choices. I'm not sure. Maybe I've not. Been, maybe not. I've maybe been this saying person this shit for decades and I only started doing it about eight months ago. So, Luke, what do you find that people find, you know, useful or empowering beyond just voting? It is interesting, again, when you chat you know, about green issues, the number of people who are organically saying they haven't stopped, for instance, eating meat, the, the majority of people, but they are cutting down and doing mm. less and things are happening organically. And I think these things work best when they sort of work with the grain of human nature, that they make the most difference. So, you know, one of, we do a lot of work on with the climate sector and how we can maintain Britain's climate consensus. And one of the biggest risks actually isn't politics, but it's the sense sometimes that climate activists give that the only way to improve the climate is to make your life that bit worse. I think we've got to convince people that actually there are sort of positive choices that you can make that not only help the environment, but also will make them sort of healthier, and also, I mean, the other side of things, I think this is so important, is, you know, politics doesn't touch that many people's lives. What does is their local area and local community. So how can we empower sort of community networks a lot more to do things like, you know, improve the local park, you know, in, you know, paint the local uh, shopping parade, that sort of thing really does make much more of a sort of tangible uh, impact. And it's why, you know, actually the power of, you know, lots of organising movements is so successful. Next this week, we're into conference season and YouGov's latest poll of polls gave Labour a 10-point lead, although this is before the death of the Queen and that has not been updated, but individual polls suggest that not much has changed. Uh, so we're going to speak to Luke uh, about what voters want. Luke, Labour maintained a, re a respectful silence on political matters during the morning period, um, but Liz Truss was busy preparing policies and um, accidentally leaking some of them. Are you surprised that there isn't more of a sort of a trust bounce not just she's not just the new leader she's promised this enormous sort of bailout on energy and of course she she took on a kind of prime ministerial role immediately um as somebody who was um you know responding to the death of the queen 
Is that going to be worrying that the Tories don't seem to have seen much of a boost at all? I think there'll be no doubt there will be um, frustration that that kind of, you know, been described that sort of big bazooka energy package because of circumstances disappeared off the news headlines almost as quickly uh, as it appears. What, what, what I'm unsure about is whether there is no bounce because there is no bounce and the opportunity is gone or the bounce is paused. Um, that when we have the sort of fiscal event this week, when, you know, obviously had the business secretary gave his announcement about businesses bills today, whether it now starts to bleed into public consciousness a little bit more. And I do think, you know, talk about party conferences specifically, I think they will matter more for both parties this year. Normally, Party conferences right, okay. make no difference to the public. Um, last year, we showed a clip of the two leaders' speeches, and the first reaction I got back from a group in Haywood was, God, who are these weirdos that go and watch and clap? And everyone else uh, fair, in the group is you know, so far removed. <laughs> but, but this time, because we've had this politics on hold, and because not only do we have Liz Truss being new, but also what's interesting is I actually think you know, people judge political leaders relative to each other. Mm. Um, so it's also an opportunity for Keir Starmer to sort of almost reintroduce himself mm. to the electorate. Mm. I think the electorate, when we talked about him in groups, you know, they certainly think he's better than Corbyn, but he struggled to connect. I think part of it, unfortunately, is, um, you know, actually the fact that he's a sir and some people assume it's a sort of hereditary thing. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, I, and COVID obviously made it difficult for him, well, for the opposition to oppose. So he has this opportunity next week, I think, to show what he's about. And Trust obviously has the opportunity to define a government. So I actually think it could be a more exciting party conference season than we've seen. What is it that voters are most concerned about at the moment? If you just wanted to be uh, ruthless about this, and target their hearts? Like, what are the top, say, three issues? Um, I mean, I'd say cost of living, cost of living, cost of living. Um, <laughs> right. in, in every uh, group, it's all people want to talk about. I mean, we've run a focus group on, you know, something like me the media or broadcasting, and people want to talk about cost of living. So I think I think that is more <laughs> closely followed by kind of related things, like the sort of, sort of shambles Britain. Um, so this idea that I can't get a doctor's appointment or a hospital appointment, I can't get a passport, my kid can't get their driving test booked, yeah. that sort of thing. So again, I think there's there's a bit of a premium on how are you going to get Britain working again. And then interestingly, third on voters' list, even now, even with cost of living going on, and even with, you know, all of the other domestic problems is climate. Um, it's really, really interesting. It has stayed, it has maintained that relatively high level of public concern. I think there's an opportunity because, you know, Labour have made some very big spending pledges on uh, the environment. It's around 28 billion. I don't think they've quite got the credit uh, for that. So there's an opportunity to revisit what their pledge there. And also, again, for the Conservatives to set out, you know, Johnson was, you know, whatever other areas you might disagree with him. He was a big champion of reaching net zero. What's Trusher's approach going well, to be that? Well, they, but this is it. If, if people care so much about climate, um, this, this insistence on, on fracking, on fossil fuels, I mean, having Mog in this job, but actually not trusted with the climate bit. He's, he's on energy, but they don't really trust him with the climate bit. I mean, there doesn't seem to be They're any... They're trusting with the energy bit. <laughs> At least he's allowed to keep that bit. But it seems that there is... I don't see any, you know, response from the government, from this, you know, from the trust government, to the fact that even Tory voters are very animated about climate. 
I mean, I thought it was interesting that even before you got to the final two, ultimately, and there was some question about whether they all would, all of the contenders did commit to the target. My guess is that what this administration is going to lean into is the techno-optimism side of climate. So I think that's where they'll put the emphasis as opposed to the more green industrialization uh, stuff that we saw under Johnson. Right. So basically just like hopefully scientists will fix it. Um, so can you just break down, we're not doing it sort of super technical, but you, you've identified these four key voting blocks that gave Boris Johnson his majority. And obviously what happens within each of those four blocks is going to decide the next election. So what are they? How do you yeah. define them? And where are the Tories looking weakest now? Yeah. So um, more common overall is identify these seven segments of the population and four of them voted for the Conservatives um, at the last election. One of them, backbone Conservatives, as the name implies, would basically vote for a donkey with a blue rosette on. So you can count them in the the Conservative (laughs) column. There's another group, uh, disengaged traditionalists, who are sort of like your sort of Essex man, and they will basically either vote Conservative or not vote. You've then got these two quite interesting groups, and they're interesting because in some ways they pull in opposite directions. So one group, we call them loyal nationals, and they're basically your sort of red wall voter. Flip over, you've got this group, the established liberals, who you might call Cameron Conservatives, Mm. very green, um, don't like the culture war stuff at all, Mm. but lean economically more right. And, you know, the magic, again, I know not everyone is a fan of Boris Johnson, was building a coalition, uh, helped by Brexit and helped by Corbyn, which bridged that divide. There's a sense now, there's a real challenge in those two groups, particularly that established liberal group who've been the group in what's known as the blue wall, who've just been slowly moving away from the Conservatives, basically, I mean, actually since before Brexit, but it was exacerbated by Brexit. What is Truss's offer to that group going to be that doesn't alienate this loyal national group who swung behind the Conservatives massively in 2017, actually, and 2019, but now have come untethered? It's those kind of, you know, they were called sort of lent votes, mm, I guess. Mm, yeah. Um, the problem with that grid is that I think stuff has intervened. So you've had the pandemic and the energy crisis, another big state intervention. So it seems to me that the that the block that wants small state is considerably shrunken after those big events. So why is she making a small state pitch to a country that over the last three years has demanded big state intervention? There's a really interesting kind of paradox when you talk about kind of big state, small state, which is, and um, James Frain has done some great work on this and sort of working class conservatives, is that if you ask people in a group, uh, they will still say, we want a smaller state. They will say there are too many people. But then you ask them what they want to cut from the state. And the focus will generally be bureaucrats. But they don't want to see cuts to the (sighs) NHS. Mm. They don't want to see cuts to defence. Don't want to see cuts to education. Magic. They want cake and eat it, basically. Yeah. Cake is. Does the polling bear out the idea that people don't want green nonsense, effectively, and that doing away with it is a vote winner? The interesting thing is that actually green issues are one of the few issues which unite all four of the Tory segments. Mm. In fact, actually unite all seven of the, including the uh, Labour voting ones. There are very few issues which span them all. And actually climate is one of them. And we're in such a lucky position in this country that we don't have climate polarisation uh, to the same degree as, mm. you know, in the US or everything. Mm. And I think it would be a real shame 
if climate became the latest victim to the culture wars and actually electorally unpopular. This is the thing, because clearly, I think one of the great sort of mistakes that's been made on the right over the last few years is thinking that what hap what's happened in America will come here. Um, and then we see, for example, the way that, you know, I mean, abortion has never been the polarizing issue. It was climate is not the polarizing issue. And there was an idea that it seemed to be that Brexit was our culture war and that there was going to attempt to extend it beyond 2019 into other things, mm. mainly statues. I mean, it was a th slim pickings. Um, and you wrote a great piece for Conservative Home last year called The Right Would Be Wrong to Wage a War on Woke. Surprisingly hard to say. Um, why is that? And were you surprised that almost all the leadership contenders um, ignored you and sort of tried to do just that, even not just Suella Braverman and Kemi Bednock, but Rishi Sunak as well. Virtually everybody weighed in on the woke. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, this, uh, and I don't, I don't just think it's a right thing. I think the left can be guilty of importing US concepts too. But one of the biggest things I do in this job is just keep saying to people, we're not America. We don't want to be America. Please stop acting uh, mm -hmm. like we're America. It drives me uh, to distraction. And the danger... There are two real dangers that I outlined in that piece. I mean, one of them is that, firstly, you know, the person who wins a culture war today often ends up on the losing side tomorrow. So you look at something like Section 28 was hugely popular when it was brought in. You know, fast forward, you know, even 10 years later and the Conservatives were having to apologise and apologise as part mm. of their detoxification process. So that's that's one thing. But I think the second thing is that actually for lots of voters, they see this culture war stuff as a distraction. People, you know, people will allow and tolerate, you know, uh, some degree of it. But if it looks like it's become a distraction right. from the bread and butter issues, the public have very little time for that. So when you're talking about this, this social, the loyal nationals, their social conservatism, I mean, is the only way in which that manifests itself in a kind of really potent way, the old thing of, you're saying small boats, the old thing basically of immigration, and there's a lot of these more sort of really newfangled things about arguments about sort of British history, but they just don't care enough. I, I think that's big. And also that we don't have in the UK what we call stacked identities. So in the US, if we, I listen to a focus group in the US, from what someone says about climate, I can tell you what they think about immigration, what they think about healthcare, what they think about guns, what they think about abortion. It just goes on. Here you don't get that. You'll get someone who is furious about small boats who then says, well, yeah, of course you take the knee because that's about loyalty to your teammates when they're taking flack. Of course you stand with them. So uh, British people are much more kind of heterodox. They don't care as much about these cultural issues. Most of it, they'll sort of, you know, roll their eyes and get up. You know, they might complain about getting frustrated, but it's not what is going to motivate their vote. As I say, I think immigration and small boats is the one exception to that because it plays into for this loyal national group one of the greatest markers of ending up in that group is thinking the world is becoming a more dangerous place and it plays into a sense of loss of control so i think that's the one issue uh, where the cultural stuff particularly resonates we talked a bit about uh, keir starmer earlier and you said how important his conference speech was going to be and i tend to agree with you i think it will be what should he be leaning into do you think if he wants to to win to to win over these groups Big thing that people, you know, want to hear, particularly during a cost of living crisis, is that he passes the he gets it test. Um, and I think that's what he struggled with a little bit today. People, as I say, have struggled to warm to him. They've seen him as you know, perhaps a little aloof. You know, what does he stand for? People mm -hmm. want to believe, unlike, you know, 
what they saw as a sort of Corbyn wish list, that he cares about making my life better and he's got a credible plan to pay for it that isn't going to sort of break the bank. So that that's it. It's that. And I think you'll see that. I think you'll see him taking an impassioned but moderate stance in his conference speech. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that has the potential, I think, to land with people. The mood music might be more important than a fully costed manifesto. In other it always words. is. Yeah. Before we go, let's take a quick look at some stories that aren't getting enough attention in Under the Radar. Uh, Roz. Uh, well, I want to talk about those uh, American candy shops on Oxford Street. It may not mean a lot if you live outside London, but Oxford Street was never that pleasant a place. It's always been polluted by you know, a lot of traffic and especially buses. But now these shops, which just sell vast amounts of overpriced candy, basically, not even what we would call in Britain sweets, have proliferated. They have a business model that involves opening and then shutting down really quite quickly within a few months, going into administration before they have to pay any kind of tax. So they basically are a way of laundering money as well. There's, there's strong links with all kinds of dodgy networks. Westminster Council, which is now Labour-run, wants to make it harder for these guys to operate and has come up with some quite good concrete plans to oh, do good. that. Things like making it more expensive to register a company at company's house and having to be more transparent about your finances. So the question is now whether the government's going to say, yeah, that's the right thing to do, let's go in this direction, because it's a it's a good plan, or whether they will ignore it. Well, it makes like, uh, you know, your kind of neglected high street in a small town look quite diverse because you've got, you know, there's the bookies <laughs> and there's the pawnbrokers and there's the charity shop. You know, you don't get those on Oxford Street. No. It's just the sweet shops. It's very spooky. Um, great. Luke? Um, for me, I think it is the um, Italian elections which are coming up mm. uh, this weekend where if the polls are right, uh, this is you know, particularly saddening to me and our mission at More in Common, um, the new prime minister uh, will be from you know, the party which is you know, the heir to followers of uh, Mussolini. So we will have, you know, really for, I guess, the first time uh, in a major economy in Europe, a very sort of hard right leader with a hard right um, maybe, coalition. Maybe, maybe, uh, yeah. Ma maybe. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. I mean, they're, they're, they're quite close and also quite low because Italian politics is quite fragmented. So it, it depends whether they find coalition yeah. partners, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, it's looking quite scary. Um, Alex. Um, so this story has gone largely under the radar here, but very much not under the radar back in my native Greece. Um, the BBC, followed by several news outlets, including CNN and incredibly Channel 4, decided to reordain Pavlos, the son of the former deposed king of Greece, as the current crown prince of Greece. All sorts of news media with the title Crown Prince of Greece and everyone on Greek social media was like, did we miss a quite a big memo? Um, so let me just say, for the avoidance of doubt, Greece got rid of its monarchy in 1974 after two referenda. The head of state is the president of the Hellenic Republic. These titles are no longer recognized by Greece. And uh, if the BBC thinks our setup is illegitimate, or we somehow have two heads of state, um, it, it would be good to hear an explanation of that. 
you know, you've got to admire his sort of self-marketing, <laughs> hasn't he? He's just sort of I mean, managed to convince people almost 50 years later that he, he is He literally went on as a panellist and some researcher went, what do you want to be called? And he said, I want to be called the Prince of Greece. And they went, all right, then. Um, yeah, so interesting what's happening in Iran after the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini in police custody. She'd been arrested by um, the morality police which I keep forgetting that they're actually called that, and that is not some sort of Orwellian invention, um, for just not wearing, you know, not wearing the, the right clothes or not wearing them properly. It's essentially a, almost a school uniform mm. violation. She died in custody. And there have been enormous protests. Now, I don't know where they will lead, but that's sort of not why I'm talking about it. It's the, it's the courage involved. And unfortunately, we've seen this many times before in Iran. We've seen young Iranians uh, going out there to protest this, you know, despotic theocracy um, at the risk, uh, you know, great risk to their freedom and their life. And there is something so admirable about that precisely because it's not an Arab Spring situation where you just think, well, we could be days away from the regime falling. Mm. You know, they really are putting their bodies on the line with, you know, the expectation that they will that they will fail. Hmm. Um, but it's, it's, it's always remarkable um, when something like that happens there. And that's the show. Thanks to Roz. Thank you. Alex. Thank you. And our guest, Luke Trill. Thank you. And stay tuned for the extra bit exclusively for Patreon backers after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And a thank you to some of our supporters. Big thanks to Helen Lang Clapp, Toby Reed, John Mullen, Tim Palmer, Oliver Weston, Alan Yates, Ben Peter Roynan, and Illumi Lama, Herald of Lama Geddon and Bringer of the Alpacalypse. Yes, this was the name they used, and they requested specifically that I read it out. That's how Pavlos got away with it. <laughs> Look, you've just fallen for it as Did well. They... You've just, you've, he just said, I insist that you call me the Grand Prince of Greece. I'm a populist. What can I say? Be the change you want to see in the world, Alex. <laughs> Thank you very much to Geraldine McClure, Mrs. M, Judy, Fiona Barrows, Daniel Roberts, David McCann, John McGarry and Charlotte Mannion. And thanks for me to Ian Rogers, Adam Bode, Terry Land, Ema Dyer, Nick Simmons, Patrick Gavin, James Martin and Maggie Argan. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Dorian Linsky with Roz Taylor, and Alex Andre. Audio production is from me, Robin Lieber, and the producers are Alex Reese, Jacob Archbold, and Jelena Sofronevich, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, group editor is Andrew Harrison, and Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, the Queen's funeral attracted more than 35 million viewers across channels. Not bad for something that isn't an international football final. What's the appeal of peak pageantry in 2022, and when does it all get to be too much? Roz, I watched the service itself, um, not all the other stuff around it. And I was fascinated by the precision of the ritual, because it's really not part of my life, and there's something about the... I was, I mean, sort of interested in the rhythms of it, despite knowing from my own experience of weddings and funerals that as soon as I get in, I'm looking at the order of service and literally counting it down, like going, how many hymns before I can leave? <laughs> um, so I know that I would not have enjoyed it uh, had I been there, but it was sort of, I found it sort of compellingly just 
just sort of strange, just not a, not what one normally sees in, in sort of British life. Did you watch it? Did you have any response? Yeah, I did watch it. And I watched it at least until the kids wanted their lunch. And um, my husband is is an ardent Republican. And so, so we had to put it on quietly as well. So it was, um, I, I think of all the four people there, I was probably the most uh, tolerant and understanding of what was going on simply because I went to a Church of England school and I kind of grew up a little bit in that atmosphere, although we didn't go to church every week. And my kids obviously do not um, go to a church school. So a lot of that was familiar. And I heard quite a few people saying that it almost felt like a substitute for COVID, for funerals they'd missed during COVID. And I find that a bit hard to buy. Because and that was a little teaser for the opulent bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more, oh God, what now every week without ads and a day early, you can sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, every Monday morning. Your support keeps us going. Thanks for listening and see you next week.